Good morning, everyone. As uh, Chris said, we're going to be looking today through the ancestry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But as we begin to think about that, I'll just to pose a few things as to why knowing your family tree is important. On the first Christian camp I went to as a teenager, <clears throat> there was one girl who took a liking to me. And when she went home and told her mum about this nice boy she met, her mum uh, gently explained to her that I was actually her second cousin. So family trees are important. But in our individualistic culture today, we, uh, we don't really place a lot of value on understanding our heritage. Um, there's been some resurgence uh, of this in recent times uh, with advertisements for Ancestry.com or popular TV shows like Who Do You Think You Are? Ian and Janelle uh, have only recently come back from touring Europe for the express purpose of learning more about their family history. Knowing your history can bring a sense of belonging. Uh, knowing you're part of something bigger can bring a sense of meaning and of purpose. Understanding how your family has lived and that you are part of something that's come before. What well, has it a guess, however, that most people don't know uh, much further back than possibly their great-grandparents. But knowing your family tree is important for one other reason, and that's establishing your claim to authority. Now, with Australia being a monarchy, uh, we know that lineage is important in that regard uh, for who sits on the throne. But other than that, it doesn't really have too much impact on us today. However, in biblical times, lineage was extremely important. When the exiles returned from Babylon, uh, we read in Ezra chapter 2, verse 62, that there were some families who sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They couldn't find their names, they couldn't be a part of the priesthood. Another incident occurred years later. According to one of the Jewish writings, King Herod, who was ruling at the time of Jesus' birth, uh, was so embarrassed that his name was not written in the official genealogies because he was only half Jew, uh, that he ordered the destruction of these papers so that no one could make a stronger claim to power than himself. Obviously, he didn't get rid of all of them because the importance of understanding and proving one's ancestry is why Matthew begins his gospel with laying down Jesus' genealogy. Now we might look at the opening section of Matthew and and think what an odd way to get people's attention as you start an incredible account. But the Jews who read it would have seen the significance of it straight away. And there is much in there that would have surprised them as well. Matthew is establishing Jesus' legal claim for the throne. And throughout the rest of this gospel, he layers more and more evidence of Jesus' credentials for kingship. And not merely the throne of an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven. Matthew traces his way back through King David and to Abraham. And he shows that Jesus is the one who fulfills God's promises to bless Israel and the nations. He shows that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the sovereign, gracious and divine King. 
But lest we think that these verses don't have any real power to them, let me remind you that every word of Scripture is God's word and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And as God said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We might look at these verses and think, more interesting things happen from verse 18. But a number of years ago, I preached through these verses and and after the service, I had someone tell me about how these verses impacted a Wycliffe Bible translator in his missionary work to the people of Papua New Guinea back in the 1970s. And so before we read the opening verses of Matthew 1, let me just tell you what happened to Des and Jenny Oatridge, lest we think these verses have no power. They just finished translating the whole of Matthew's Gospel, uh, all except for the first 17 verses. So Des and his native translator, Sisia, they set to work. And Sisia stood up after they'd finished and said to Des that he was calling an important meeting with the community that night so that Des could read out what they had just translated. Now Des was surprised, but he agreed. And so that night, Des went to one of the houses, which was filled to capacity, and he set about reading Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And he felt extremely intimidated, because as he started to read, the attention of the people grew more and more intense, and they started actually crowding in around him, trying to look at the paper for themselves. And once he finished reading, one of the native men declared, Why did you not tell us this before? And another said, No one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. Another added, It's only real people who record their genealogical table. Someone else cried, Jesus must be a real person. Others said, Jesus must have been a real man on this earth then. He's not just white man's magic. And the final proclamation, Then what this mission has taught us is real. Perhaps that account may stir our hearts as we look through this passage now. As seeing the reality of Jesus' existence, this is just the tip of the iceberg in all that God has in store for us in these opening verses. So if you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles and we're going to read Matthew 1, 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, 
Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. For the Jewish people, ancestry was crucial. And we can see that throughout Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 13, we read that Jesus visited his hometown of Nazareth and the people were absolutely astonished. And they said from verse 54, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. He's a nobody. He's no one. Why should we pay attention to him? And here we see why Matthew, writing predominantly to Jews, opens with a proof of Jesus' pedigree. Now, Matthew 1 verse 1, we read, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 17, we get this summary statement. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now it's clear that the term Christ is not simply Jesus' last name, but it's a title. He is the Christ. And the Hebrew term for that is the Messiah, This is the long-awaited saviour and Matthew's efforts to lay down Jesus' lineage are to prove that Jesus is the one whom scriptures point to. And what we'll see is it also reveals a great deal about the nature of the Messiah, which stands in contrast to what the people had been expecting. But we'll get onto that later. One thing to be aware of from the beginning is that while this is a factual genealogy, it's also highly stylized. You see, Matthew has omitted certain names of generations in order to maintain symmetry. And he's done this as an aid to memory. But he uh, may also be seeking to, to reinforce the legitimacy of Jesus in his presentation. You see, the Hebrew system known as gematria 
uh, or gematria, is a method of assigning numbers to letters. And so the number 14 of 14 generations happens to be the numerical total of the, the letters in the name David. But we need to remember that Matthew is not out to establish a strict chronology in this genealogy. This is different, absolutely different to the genealogies we find in the early chapters of Genesis where Moses was establishing a chronological line. There is no gaps in those genealogies. Matthew, on the other hand, makes no pretense about doing so. He has a different purpose. His purpose was to highlight how Jesus is traced back to David and to Abraham. Now the word translated in English as the father of can and often does mean ancestor. We even see in verse 1 that Jesus is declared to be the son of David and the son of Abraham, meaning they were part of his ancestral line. So we're going to approach this text this morning by going through the three divisions uh, that Matthew has established and addressing a number of important aspects as they come up in the text. Now by way of headings then, the first thing I want us to notice is that the ancestry of Jesus shows he is the son of Abraham. The ancestry of Jesus shows he is the son of Abraham. In the Gospel accounts... There are two genealogies given for Jesus. Uh, The one here in Matthew and another one in Luke's Gospel. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy in reverse order, going back through David and Abraham and even further to Adam. And the reason for the different approach comes about in the purposes of each author. Luke He was writing primarily for a Gentile audience and and so we can see the importance of tracing his way back to Adam, a link that all humanity can make, Jew and Gentile alike. Matthew, on the other hand, is writing primarily to a Jewish audience and, and draws his readers to the attention of two primary ancestors in David and Abraham. Abraham is the the patriarch of the Israelite nation. He was the one who was elected out of all peoples following the dispersion from Babel. He was a pagan whom God in his sovereignty chose to place his grace upon and through this man bring about the promise of salvation that had been given right after the fall. But these promises were not just for Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, We read this in verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chose to bless Abraham and his descendants, but it would be through Abraham that the nations of the world would be blessed. And so the fact that Jesus is the son of Abraham is not just significant for the Jews, but for all people. And if we jump to the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, the Great Commission sends people out to spread the gospel to the whole world. Now let me just backtrack a moment for you to get a broader 
perspective of this importance. In the scriptures, we see that God has always been the sovereign king over his creation. And he interacts with people through covenants, his promises. And the covenants form the spine, the the backbone throughout the whole biblical narrative. The covenant that God made with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12 and then reiterated in chapter 15 and 17 was a progression on the covenants that God had already made. Prior to Abraham, God had made a covenant with Noah. But this was a progression on the covenant God had made with Adam and the wider creation at the beginning. Now, while the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1 and 2, it's clear that there are significant elements there which are found in covenants. Uh, There's a, a relationship between a lord and a servant. There's instructions concerning reward for obedience and punishment for disobedience. And if we follow the progression... We see that Adam and Eve broke covenant with God and not only they but the whole of creation was punished. However, God in his grace immediately had a place, had in place a promise of salvation. Plan, of course, that wasn't plan B after they fell but had been set in place before creation. But we see that come out in history in Genesis 3:15, God declared to the serpent I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now here is is what is called the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel. It is the first promise that God would bring an end to the evil and suffering caused by sin. And boy, was there a lot of evil and suffering caused by sin very quickly. By the time of Noah's generation, we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God saved righteous Noah, not sinless Noah, but righteous and faithful Noah, and his family, and two of every kind of land, animal, and bird, and he saved them and destroyed the whole earth with a flood. After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah, which we read about in chapter 6 and then in chapter 9. Noah served as another Adam. And the gospel promise of a saviour to be born would come through his line. But Noah's actions in in planting a vineyard and getting drunk and sinning straight after this showed that he too was bound by his sinful nature. And we begin to see more clearly the depravity of human nature and the need for divine grace to bring about a heart transformation in sinners. After Noah, we see the continued spread of sin, the the incredible arrogance of of that incident at the Tower of Babel which then leads us to the account of Abraham. At this point, God doesn't destroy the world again. He had promised not to. But he sets apart a man to make a nation through which the saviour of the world would come. Now hold that thought because we'll pick it up again as we move through the text. But even here, 
This is beautiful in how it shows that salvation comes only by the sovereign grace of God. You see, out of all the people in the world from which to start a nation, God chose, he chose, he elected a man whose wife was infertile. Well, that's some oversight. But it's not an oversight, is it? God did exactly that to show that salvation is solely to the glory of God alone. It's another way that shows that God is the one in charge and that we have no ability to come to him in ourselves. And so the genealogy in Matthew 1 is is bookended by two miraculous births, Isaac and Jesus. Of course, the the later birth of Jesus will be even more magnificent because while God worked a miracle in the healing of uh, Abraham's wife Sarah in her womb, allowing Abraham to produce a son in the normal way, God would work a miracle in Mary, allowing her to fall pregnant without even knowing a man. Now, before we move from this section, let's also just dwell a little longer on the fact that the covenant with Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. The mention of two women here shows the wonder of this. Rahab and Ruth. Both were Gentiles. Rahab was a Canaanite who assisted the Israelite spies when when Joshua led the people to destroy the city of Jericho. That was Rahab. Ruth, she was a Moabite. And the Moabites traced their history back to Genesis 19 when Lot's daughters got him drunk so that he might father children for them. And one of those daughters gave birth to a son whom she called Moab. That's Ruth's lineage. Now to see these women in Jesus' ancestry would have caused a tremendous stir for the Jews. But what an incredible picture of the fulfilling of God's promise to Abraham, that through him the nations would be blessed, that through Abraham the gospel, the good news of salvation would be made available to Gentiles like you and me. So here is why it's necessary that Jesus was the son of Abraham. But he was more than the son of Abraham. For the ancestry of Jesus shows he is the son of David. He's the son of David. This again is a crucial connection. Now, picking up on the covenant that God made with Abraham, we recognise that the next big covenant was to the nation of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. And it was the nation itself that became another Adam. It would be through Israel that the promises to Adam, to Noah and to Abraham would be fulfilled. Now Abraham had eight sons in total, but it was through Isaac that God's covenant would proceed. Then from Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob who was renamed Israel. But this covenant was focused even further in the covenant that God made with David years later. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God declared to David through Nathan the prophet, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Davidic king would serve as a representative of Israel. And the Davidic king would be another Adam. One who sat on David's throne would be called the Christ, the Messiah. But the problem was that not even David could fulfill his covenant obligations. It's only in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that we read of his horrific actions in committing adultery with Bathsheba and then orchestrating the execution of her righteous husband, Uriah. And the list of kings in Jesus' genealogy is a clear demonstration that things did not improve after David. Some were good, like Asa and Jehoshaphat, although they were not sinless. But there were others who were straight out wicked, like Rehoboam, Abijah, and Joram. What's clear from this is that God's sovereignty meant that he was able to providentially bring about his purposes despite the sinfulness of people. But of course, the Bible speaks even more strongly about God's sovereignty than this. It wasn't God that had just worked through and despite the actions of the sinful people. Because although God is not the author of sin, he nonetheless ordains everything that comes to pass. And he does this so that we might see the glory of his grace. How much more can we glorify God that he was able to work through sinful disobedience to bring into this world its only saviour? And he chose to do it this way that we might see clearly his sovereignty on display. That is truly amazing. But the lack of ability of the Davidic kings to to maintain their covenant obligations, it only served to emphasise the necessity of God's work if salvation was going to be achieved, if the good news promised back in Genesis 3 was ever going to occur. And this is why the prophets in the Old Testament began to speak of a new covenant, a covenant that God would bring about where the responsibility would be solely upon him. We read, for instance, in Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It was a promise that God would bring about. While the nation of Israel was set apart as God's people, Scripture reminds us that not all Israel was Israel. It was a mixed community because 
while all in the nation were physically circumcised, the sign of membership in God's covenant people, not all were circumcised in the heart. Not all were true believers. Not all had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and able to trust in Christ. Not all, sorry, trust in God's promises, fulfilled in Christ. Not all were truly his saved people. But under the new covenant, that would be different. In the new covenant community, which we know as the church, membership is not based on ethnicity or or physical uh, demands, but on spirituality. It is for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, only able to profess faith in Jesus Christ because of the grace at work in their lives. Now the failure of the Davidic kings emphasised time and time again the necessity of God's sovereignty and grace. Now especially when we look at the last name mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 verse 11 and that name of Jeconiah. Now in the Old Testament he's also known as Jehoiachin or Kaniah. Well it's clear from the fact that Matthew says he was born at the time of the deportation to Babylon that the Davidic kings had failed. The nation was exiled to Babylon as punishment for their disobedience to God. But God's work is even more necessary because in Jeremiah 22 verse 30, God declares this about Kaniah or Jeconiah. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God curses him, the king, David's son, is cursed by God, and God says that none of his offspring will ever sit on the throne again. Now, okay, we have a serious problem. It was to be through the Davidic royal line that God's saviour would arrive. But now God has just said that line will never have a son sitting on the throne. That's a problem. And here again, we see the sovereignty and wonder of God at work. For Jesus to be the Christ, he must come from the royal line of David. But if Jesus were born in the natural way as a son of Joseph, then he could never have claimed Davidic kingship because he would have been under a curse had he took the throne. Do you see that? That's a problem. There was no way, humanly speaking, that any royal descendant of David could have been the Messiah. The curse against Jeconiah prohibited that. There was only one way for anyone to truly fulfill that role, and that was through the miraculous provision of God. Somehow God had to provide a way. And so... The genealogy shows that Jesus is the son of David, but the genealogy shows finally that he is the Christ. And indeed, it shows that only Jesus could be the Christ. Now, stay with me here. For Jesus to be the Christ, he needed to trace his royal lineage back to David. Now, Matthew shows that he can because Joseph was a descendant of the royal line from David. 
But here's a dilemma. If Jesus were a natural descendant of Joseph, if he were biologically Joseph's son, then he could not fulfill the role of Davidic king because in taking the throne, he would come under the curse of God. Now, this is why studying the grammar in the Bible is so important. Because Matthew is so precise in his language here. In verse 16, we read this. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, there are three important features here. And don't worry if you can't remember them, but just know that they're here. First, in the English phrase, of whom Jesus was born, the of whom has a feminine gender in the Greek text, and it connects Jesus' physical birth directly to Mary and not to Joseph. Joseph is the husband of Mary, and this gives Jesus a legal connection to the royal line of David. But Matthew has very carefully removed Joseph from the picture as regarding any biological connection. That's first. Secondly, all the descriptions in this passage of men becoming the father of their sons are stated in the Greek text with an active voice. That means the men were involved in the action. They did something to bring this about. But in verse 16, where Jesus is born to Mary, the Greek text has a passive voice, which means that Mary received the action. While she was the mother of Jesus, it was brought about by the action of God. And third, it is through Mary that Jesus' physical lineage is traced back to David. And so the royal line comes through Joseph and the physical line comes through Mary. And that's the difference right there between the genealogies listed in Matthew and Luke. Luke, he traces the physical line back through Mary. That's why in Luke chapter 3, Joseph is listed as the son of Heli, instead of in Matthew, where Joseph's father is Jacob. That's because Heli is Joseph's father-in-law. That's Mary's father. And that's why Luke lists David's son as Nathan rather than Solomon, as Matthew does. I see, this is the wonder of God's amazing plan of salvation. In his incredible wisdom and brilliance, it is through the virgin birth that Jesus is born the son of David through the royal line and the physical line. So right here in the genealogy, Matthew is laying down irrefutable proof of the exclusivity of Jesus. No one else could ever be the one to fulfill God's promises. It is not humanly possible. It is only possible by the sovereign and gracious work of God. Now, while it's clear then that Jesus has a claim to kingship, that he is indeed the Christ, the question remains, what kind of king will he be? The people's expectation was that the Messiah would be a warrior just like David, to come in power and defeat their enemies and and lead them to freedom. 
Now Jesus will indeed come in judgment. Revelation 19 pictures the warrior king returning to bring judgment. But that's his second advent. In Jesus' first advent, his first coming, he came to save people from their sins. When the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, we read in the next section in, in Matthew 1.21, the angel said of Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This, this is the greatest problem that people faced. And it's still the greatest problem that people face. Every person is born with a sinful nature due to their being descendants of Adam. And as a result, we stand under the righteous wrath of God. We are enemies of holy God and we are in desperate need of a saviour. Jesus is that saviour. And the means of salvation would come through the substitutionary sacrifice of his own life for his people. What did Jesus say to his disciples in the upper room hours before he was arrested? Matthew 26, we read, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the Messiah. He is the king, but he is also the priest who offers the perfect sacrifice for the salvation of his people for all those who would repent of their sin and trust in his work alone, his work to bring forgiveness of sin, his work to bring a right standing before holy God. Jesus' death establishes the new covenant, which is what all the other covenants pointed towards. And as the mediators of the previous covenant served as another Adam, so Jesus is called the last Adam. In Jesus Christ, all God's promises are now yes and amen. Now when we consider all these things, we can see very clearly that there is much more to this genealogy than simply a list of names. We see the incredible sovereignty of God, working all things to bring about the purposes of his glory. This short passage reminds us that God is the Lord of history that nothing happens outside of his providential guiding, more than that, outside of his sovereign ordaining. This is true for ensuring that the arrival of his son into history at the, the fullness of time happened. And it will certainly be true in bringing all things to its proper end when Christ returns once more. Christians, let that be a great encouragement to you that nothing in your life happens outside the sovereign control of God either. Now, if you're here today and you have not submitted to Jesus in repentance and faith, then do not miss the reality that God is sovereign and one day you will have to stand before him. There is only one path to salvation and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So make this the day of your salvation. We also see the incredible grace of God in this passage. His undeserved merit. We see that in his bringing into this world a saviour. 
We also see his grace in the way he brings his favour onto undeserving sinners to include them into the lineage of the Saviour, of his Son. Abraham, as we've seen, was a pagan and God elected him by his grace alone. David was blessed with undeserved grace. His sin is mentioned in the genealogy. Verse 6 says that he was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's no hiding there, but even that is a testimony to God's grace. Or think again of the four women. Two were harlots, one was a product of incest, and one was an adulteress. And yet, in his grace, God included them in the lineage of his son. One wonders whether Matthew specifically included them to help with Mary's integrity, for she was no doubt disparaged as guilty of adultery as well. Let these pictures of grace remind you that none of us comes to God boasting in our own works. None. Romans 3 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation being a a sacrifice to deal with God's wrath. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. No one brings anything to the table. Only the one who humbles himself will be lifted up. Only the one who acknowledges he has nothing in himself will receive everything in Christ God's grace is undeserved favour. None of us is deserving. And that is what makes grace so amazing. Matthew has shown us that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the son of David and the son of Abraham and the only one who ever could be. The question is, how will you respond to him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. We come before you in repentance at the many times we've glossed over these words and not realised their importance. We thank you for the meticulous nature of your word, the clarity, the specificity, even in in the, 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 the tenses of the words you have made clear that Jesus Christ is the only saviour of this world. Father, may we be astounded by your sovereignty. May we be incredibly comforted by your grace. Father, may your spirit work to regenerate people's hearts that they may come to trust in Jesus, the one and only Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.